Hello, listeners, or listener, <laughs> however many we have. Uh, today is Wednesday, April 4th, 2012, and this is Think Relevance, the podcast. So today I'm talking to Alan Diper. He's a developer here at Relevance. Uh, hello, Alan. How are you? Howdy. Doing great. Good. So it turns out that Alan is technically our first repeat guest. Uh, he and I recorded the very first episode of the podcast way back in December. I guess you'd call it episode zero. Uh, we never wound up publishing that podcast because we wound up talking about a bunch of stuff that wasn't really ready for publication. Uh, for example, we talked about ClojureScript 1 before that was ready to go. Right. So, so I never released that episode, but it was super helpful to me to have gone through that experience. Uh, and also, Alan is a really interesting, a really funny, and really smart guy, so I'm thrilled to have you back today, Alan. Thanks. Yeah, I don't know who you're talking about, but um, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, <laughs> that's just part of your camouflage. I was... Uh, looking at your Twitter stream the other day and I followed a link that you had to something you had written and I'm like I don't even understand this lambda calculus thing you're talking about so you can't, you can't hide it from me um, so anyway before we go too much farther I think you know the question that's coming next um, our readers have been readers our listeners have been listening to some music well I blathered my way through the introduction uh, and since you're the guest you were the one who picked it right uh, so lay it on us so um, April spring summer and Wednesday by status quo April, Spring, Summer, and Wednesday by Status Quo. Okay, yes. cool. I was wondering if you were going to pick the same music that you picked during the, we'll call it the pilot, but I, uh, you went with something different. That's cool. Yeah, no, I, I find myself listening to uh, different stuff cool. uh, often, so I'm mixing it up a little. I was wondering whether, also wondering whether it might not be some sort of um, uh, mashup of the uh, Eye of the Tiger. Yeah. <laughs> since, uh, since one of the things that we want to talk about today is uh, training, and I, that was the song that came to my head when I think of training, you know. Oh, yes. Rocky yep. Balboa. All right, cool. So uh, fade the intro music, and let's jump into something that I know that you've been working on, something that I've been working on with you, which is uh, uh, training. And by that, I mean uh, relevance is um, uh, making a bigger push into the space of offering courses in various topics. Now, you and I have been working on uh, the Closure JVM course, um, and that's been available. People have been able to come to us and ask for that. But we've been starting to be a little bit more public about saying that we're doing that and also expanding that whole effort a bit. Um, I wonder if you want to kick us off by talking about that. <clears throat> so the uh, really right now we're, we've, we've just rolled out four kinds of training. Uh, the first one is for closure proper, closure on the JVM. This is a course that is the, the um, further development of the, a lot of the same material that Stu and Rich presented at the uh, Prague trainings back in the day, and we've expanded and updated and generally made more awesome that material. Um, the second flavor we have is closure script training, which is similar to the closure training, same length, same general flow, uh, except it's information specific to closure script, but it includes everything about closure you need to know to effectively write uh, closure script, which is neat because this is a, a training option for people who don't necessarily know closure but would like to learn ClojureScript. And uh, I think there's certainly been a sense cruising cruising tweets and blogs that uh, a lot of people from the JavaScript and other communities are interested in ClojureScript, and we think this could be an option for, for folks. Um, then we also have a Ruby on Rails training offering. Uh, in addition to being a Clojure shop, I guess you could say, we have a, historically we've been a Ruby on Rails place, and we have some of the greatest 
in my opinion, some of the greatest and most awesome uh, Ruby and Rails experts in the world here. For sure. Loads of knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, and that would be a uh, that would be a course for anybody with uh, web development experience uh, could learn how to use Rails, uh, you know, modern Rails practices to to build stuff in short order. Uh, finally, uh, for a long time, we've had on our website a, a document. It's really sort of an ebook called How We Work, which um, people have been interested in ever since we put it up. And it's basically a, an, a, an outline of all the people, the, the sort of caricatures of people we normally see involved in software development from you know stakeholders to project managers to developers to end users. Uh, we characterize all the people involved in our our software development process, and then we talk about what a what a project looks like from a process perspective. So it's kind of the relevance flavored agile in this how we work um, ebook, really. And we've worked to develop that into a training course, which is a mixture of uh, lectures and, and group exercises. Um, I, w- I would say, as far as agile training goes, there's there's a lot of stuff out there, and it runs the gamut from, you know, this is how you need to do it, or you're doing it wrong. Uh, I would say our our flavor of agile is fairly loose, and this this course would be more about uh, letting participants know all of the tools that are available to them, and then giving them the knowledge to figure out which pieces they want to bring into their process. Because you know everybody's everybody's situation is going to be different. Um, yeah, I like I like to say that we don't have a process; we have a process for creating a process. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, we have we we practice meta agile here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, those those are the four things. We're really excited to be offering all of them. Yeah, that last one I, I think is interesting too. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that I've found is as as we exit engagements with customers, you know, we've developed the product, we've delivered it, um, helped people out. You know, the thing that they want to know on the way out the door is okay, okay. So now so now it's going to be my team and not my team plus you guys. You know, what can we do to kind of transfer all the awesome stuff that you guys do, the way that you do things to my team. Right. And so I think, uh, you know, you know, I mean, that's, you know, brain transfers aside, right? Like having some training that lets people learn some of those techniques and tools and approaches would be really useful. Right. Right. And I think uh, some of our value, if not most of our value in that area comes from the fact that as a consultancy, you know, compared to the average product engineering team, um, we work with a wide variety. We interface with a wide variety of other teams, other software teams. So we have a pretty good sense for generally how people are building software in the world. And uh, I don't know. I, I think that gives us a, an interesting insight into what tools are available and what might work in a given situation. And yeah, that's that's part of what we bring to client projects. So the other thing I noticed when I was looking at the website is that there's a bit at the bottom that says uh, we'll work with you if you have some other thing that you wanted, if you think we're good at it and you would like to get better at it yourself, we'll work with you to develop uh, custom training materials. That Right. Is that, uh, how does that work? So, uh, it's, I imagine it'll be the case that there are people out there with particular problems and it doesn't feel like any one of our individual uh, courses will help them solve that problem. And um, that's in there to let people know that we're more than happy to work with people to develop something that fits their uh, fits what they're doing. Um, like for instance, I think at a recent a recent closure training engagement, um, we had a, a customer who was really really interested. Actually, you, you were with me at this one, Craig. They were mm-hmm. really interested in the performance aspects of closure and primitive operations and JVM interop nitty gritty. And um, 
we ended up we sort of did this on the fly, but we ended up focusing on those things for that particular audience. And the reason we call that out now on the website is just to let people know up front, like, hey, if you know, if you, say you have a team that already knows Closure, but you really, really want to dig into um, large projects with Closure, you know, project organization or the finer points of uh, interop, uh, then we we'd be willing potentially to to tailor the training to meet that need. Right. And that was actually, I mean, you, that class was fun. And oh, yeah. you're right. They totally were interested in, in performance. Like we would talk about anything and someone would raise their hand and say, what are the performance implications of this? Which is totally a reasonable question to ask. Right. One of the things that I thought was great there, and just to give people a sense of like, you know, why should they have relevance come do this is, you know, there were a couple of times where someone would ask a question like that and, you know, you would pipe up and say, well, you know, I was at the Closure Core meeting where we discussed this feature. And, <laughs> you know, like I, I talked to Rich before he put it in. And so, you, you know, just having that kind of um, inside track was, was pretty cool, I thought. I mean, I, you know, you really couldn't ask for a better question than uh, here's a relation of the conversation I had with the language inventor about the exact thing you're talking about. So that was that was pretty neat. Yeah, it was – it's uh... – it, it's neat. I mean, it's neat from two perspectives. It's neat from my perspective because I have a, a particular, I'm basically paid to have a particular visibility into Clojure itself, which is part of our Open Source Fridays thing. And I often find myself working on Clojure in the guts of it. Um, that's neat for me, but it's, yeah, it's, it's neat for the students too, because not everybody has the time or interest to, you know, learn how sausage is made <laughs> in Clojure in their free time. And um, it's, a, it's a neat opportunity to get that information out there. Yeah. So I mean I guess I alluded to this, but um, the 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 closure JVM course at least um, has uh, typically had two instructors, right? Which is maybe a little bit different than the sort of training people are used to, where there's one person at the front of the room and they're they're taking you through everything. I, I mean I've done a fair amount of training myself, and some of it solo, some of it with other people, um, as many as four, um, and uh, I really like that. I mean it's it's just a lot of fun. What was your experience of that, and and do you think it's a good thing or so I think it's a great thing. Um, I, you know, I, I had only ever given training in non-technical contexts and usually solo. And I think I found that it was really, it made delivering the material more engaging for me as an instructor because uh, there, were, there were bits of things that you knew and I didn't. And I was, you know, as enraptured listening to you as the class was. <laughs> Likewise, <laughs> it's the same was true for me. And uh, so that was that was neat. Um, I also think it made our our lab and sort of workshop time way more effective because uh, when people had questions or problems, there were two people working the working the issues. Right. Um, yeah, and it, it was great, and it, it was just fun. You know, I, I think I think two people talking, especially two people who who know each other or have have a dynamic that's interesting, like I, I would say we do. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, it's more interesting for the students to see that. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, we would kind of make fun of each other a little bit sometimes, and it was just it was yeah it was a good dynamic like you yeah said. And, and alternating speaking as well, so people yeah. don't have to listen to my boring voice the whole time. <laughs> right, or you know, listen to me say you know a hundred thousand times or whatever it is. <laughs> I'm gonna get all self conscious now. Here we are in the podcast, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was good, and I and I think that was a that was a cool aspect. I I, I mean, I have to say, like I did training a lot. Um, you know, I met Stu and Justin at Developmenter, where you know that was our whole gig was we did training. And mm-hmm. uh, this this the class that we taught together, the closure one, is a good class. I particularly like the labs. Actually, I thought the labs are really good. Um, the 
I know that you had a hand in those, and Stuart Sierra did, and a few other people as well. And and those just seem to go off really well. People seem to, to be able to get through them. Like, it was a good balance between um, giving people enough information that they could actually not get lost, um, which is a challenge because stuff's new to people. Right. Um, and also having enough freedom left that you could actually learn something, you know, actually take your brain through the, oh, yeah, they mentioned this. I guess that must mean that. Let me try it out. So. Right. Yeah. No, it's the the labs are really cool. I, I think I had much less to do with the labs than um, I think Tim and particularly Stuart Sierra did. Right. Uh, yeah, the, the labs are just really, really fun. Yeah, agreed. All right, cool. Um, well, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about training. I mean, I, I, I know we sound a little bit like an advertisement and, and to some degree <laughs> that, I mean, you know, this is the Relevance podcast. We, we definitely want to let people know that, you know, we've got this service and I'm but I really did think it was good training. I mean, I've seen bad training, and this wasn't it. So, so I'm, you know, I'm not a shill here. I'm really saying this is good stuff. And, but I, 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 unless there's anything else you think we need to hit on in that area, there's a bunch of other stuff I'd like to talk to you about too. Sure. Um. Well, I might, I might cap it off by saying, you know, I think some percentage of the people listening may have the same opinion of training that I did when I first decided to to get involved <laughs> with it, which was that it's an unnecessary thing, and that, you know, there's you can just learn everything on your own, and I think that's true. You can, but if you have the opportunity and the money and the means to be professionally trained about something that you're interested in learning, you are just drastically more effective at, at picking that up. I, uh, I think, you know, if back in college when I was first exposed to closure, I think if I had access to the training, I would be, wow, I would have had way more free weekends for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so. that. And there's also the fact that, um, you know, we've had people in that, uh, in the clo- in the class that have been doing closure. Uh, in fact, when I took the course from Stu and Rich, you know, at the beginning of the class, uh, Stu asked, "Hey, so if you've written a book or a tutorial or have recorded a screencast on closure, raise your hand." And a whole bunch of people raised their hand. I mean, it was a good, I don't know, quarter of the class had actually, you know, learned closure enough to the point where they felt comfortable teaching it to other people. Right. Uh, in some form or another. And, you know, we still learned a lot because there's a lot to be said for I'm going to take work time and I'm going to dedicate it to just doing this thing in the company of other people that are also dedicated to just doing this thing. So right. that's a that's a good thing, too. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I was flipping through your just to t- totally switch gears. I was flipping through your uh, Twitter stream earlier. I always like to kind of do that with guests before the show if I if I get a chance. Uh huh. And uh, I noticed it looked like you were I don't know if trading tweets is the right word, but I saw you had addressed at least one to uh, JWZ Jamie Zwinski. Oh yes, one of my heroes. Yeah. What was that all about? Um. So Jamie Zwinski is a really interesting character. I, I would say these days he's just, he's on kind of the periphery of computing. Uh, he's um, an old school AI lab hacker. Uh, I think he at one point worked under Peter Norvig and was an expert on Xerox Lisp machines. Um, worked at the CMU AI lab with Norvig in I think, the late 80s or early 90s. Uh, did a lot of interesting work there and then went to work for Netscape, the company, which uh, no longer really exists, <laughs> where he was the either primary implementer or maintainer of the uh, Netscape web browser for Unix machines, X11. 
Um, and he has a really interesting blog, and he talks a lot about his startup experience and his experience with Netscape and his perspectives on technology. Um, but after he cashed out of Netscape, he went and bought a club in San Francisco. I forget what it's called. Um, uh, the DNA Lounge. So he bought this club called the DNA Lounge in San Francisco uh, that had been kind of down and out and revitalized it. And now he is no longer a really professional programmer. He's a professional club owner. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, and the thing I, I, one of the reasons I follow him on Twitter is that he period, periodically puts together what he calls mixtapes, which are YouTube playlists of the music that he's listening to or playing at the club and uh, being a fan of uh, independent sort of pop and dance kind of music. I, uh, I follow him closely for that. All right. <laughs> I, I saw some reference to mixtape, and I was—I don't know—I guess I thought it was some kind of program. You know, so I thought maybe it was some sort of open source project or something. I had no <laughs> idea. He's like—it's just—it was a mixtape, like a classic mixtape. No, it's—it's funny. It's funny JWZ's relationship with programming these days. I mean, obviously he's—you know—genius level, wizard level, both Lisp and Unix hacker. Um, but once he got out of the game and went into the club thing, he you know his he relegated his computing to to hobby stuff, um, with a particular emphasis on screensavers, which is kind of his specialty. Hmm. Um, and he, uh, he either he might talk about this somewhere, but he really likes screensavers, of course, because you can never really get them wrong. I mean, if you're hmm. showing something on the screen, your screensaver is working, and you know you, there's nobody to impress, or <laughs> it's really just a totally. Uh, a personal endeavor writing screensavers hmm. and he's he, he's written some really neat ones cool had no idea alan you are a font of useful information <laughs> i'm on the bleeding edge of screensaver and uh youtube playlist technology there you go uh so another interesting thing i saw on uh your twitter feed was you were talking about the need to represent css as data right and, and i know for you i know i went to your Closure West talk, which was great, Um, and then having talked to you at work a few times, uh, I know that uh, data is a big thing for you. Um, uh, And then I know that you worked on Datomic. Uh, I don't know whether those things are related, but um, kind of one of the other questions I had for you, and I I suspect that these are all kind of roll up in one is, you know, I think you have had an opportunity more than just about anybody except maybe Stu to work with Rich Hickey. Right. Um, and so I'm sure that there's at least one listener out there who's like, boy, I wonder what that's like. And, <laughs> and, and having known you over the last uh, almost two years now and, you know, having seen this this uh, increasing interest in like different ways of working um, kind of mentally and in, and in data in particular, I wonder if you could sort of maybe if, 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 tell me, am I wrong? Are those things kind of all wrapped up together, working with? Yeah, they're Rich? all they're all they're all related. I mean, I, I guess I could say that they're all related, and either data or Rich Hickey tie them all together. <laughs> um, closure fits in there somehow. Datomic does, and there's a certain mindset that comes with it. But I can, I guess, I could start to chip away at it by saying that um, I think one of the main things I learned just working with Clojure, I mean, before I even had the opportunity to work with Rich or work on Datomic or work at Relevance or anything, just using Clojure, uh, you start to develop a sense for what feels good and what feels bad as you're typing. And it's it's sort of creepy. Uh, you have a feeling for whether or not these functions or concepts or pieces of data should fit together or not. 
And one of the realizations, I think, for anybody learning Clojure, especially if they've moved into the sort of intermediate phase, is the shape of the data you're moving around and operating on becomes really important. And mm. the there are these boundaries between data where the shape of the data changes. You may be turning a, a map into a sequence and then a sequence into a set. And those boundaries become probably the, the, the most complicated parts of your program and the, the parts that you need to think about and get right. Um, so that's been kind of interesting uh, to think more in terms of programming as this act of transitioning data from between shapes. And uh, with that then, so the follow-on realization after that is, well, it's actually really important what data I pick to start with. You know, what's the shape of the data of my inputs and the shape of the data of my outputs and how will that shape affect what I'll be able to do with that data in the future as I work on my program. Um, so I, I just said all that, and now it sounds like I'm advocating, you know, schemas or something. But um, <laughs> I know I didn't take that away. <laughs> it's more, uh, it, it's more sort of this perspective of you're not really programming; you're you're moving data between shapes, and programming is the way you can do that. Uh, but if you think about your program that way, I think I found, at least personally, that um, programming is both more fun and it becomes clearer what you should do. Uh, I don't, you know. I don't think I didn't I didn't know any lisps before closure, but I definitely never got that feeling working with other languages that data was so important. It always felt like, you know, I need to be writing functions and methods and doing stuff and setters and getters and uh, in the end, for me personally anyway, all that stuff turned out to be sort of incidental and not the thing I was after and working with data is is the thing, as far as I can tell right now. Well I think there I mean for me at least there was a sense of um you know, discovering the shape of your data. Um, when I was heavy into old uh, paradigms, for me, that was C-sharp. Uh -huh. uh, but it was always, um, you know, I've got to create a bunch of classes, and they have to have the right properties that that model my uh, my my domain, right? So I, that I have, once I've got kind of the, the model for what all my information is, oh, I know I've got this class, and that references one of these, and it's got a collection of those. Right. That kind of did it. But it was very, very different than than closure where it's like mm, I'm gonna use a map right right and then you're done and it's not uh, it's not you know crafting at like the atomic level of uh, these individual molecules that I then had to glue together and to create uh, special transformations to go from one to another so I think there I I've, maybe I don't understand precisely what you're saying because I know you've been thinking about this a lot but I think there was an element of that in, in the way that I used to code, at least. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and I, and I think the, the realization that, that Rich had that he brought to closure is this idea that there aren't naturally many types of, of data, like in nature. There are mm -hmm. sort of primary primary organizations of data, and there are you know, maps and sets, or you know, maps or dictionaries, um, sets, lists of things. Um, and you can express more complicated arrangements of data in terms of those lower level things. And then if you do that, you can have really generic operations on both the primary things and the composite things. And um, at least where I'm at in my sort of learning closure and understanding Lisp uh, path, it seems like an important thing. That's really cool. Um, but, but I wonder if you could expand on the kind of everything is data um, Thing, meme a little bit more because I know sure. that's something that you've been really into. Right. Yeah. So once uh, once you get over this fact that there aren't very many flavors or primary shapes of data, you know, once there there are fewer than ten 
general kinds of well and we're talking about collections here but and it's true of other kinds of data too the data as well you know you've got you know integers and maybe decimal things and ratios and strings maybe but those are arguably sequences but there's you know a handful of these sort of the bottom of data the bottom of the tools the concepts that you need to express data that exists in the world in your program um and uh it's composing those things instead of inventing your your own new sort of crappy versions of them that <laughs> give you the, the the general power over the whole set of these primary shapes um and i think once you have this mindset you you, you look at some data that's represented like you might look at a csv file for instance and you'd say oh well you know we've got strings and numbers in there and they're separated by commas but the, they're really separated by commas because they're sequences um uh, but there's also a columnar aspect of them and the rows are mean something independently of the rest of the data so it's kind of like a sequence of dictionaries um and you kind of look at stuff and think well you know i can think of the primary kinds of data that this representation is is composed of ultimately and there's a certain irritation then that comes with realizing that the thing you're looking at is expressed in a way that doesn't make clear the primary shapes it's composed of and it sometimes gets it wrong i think um a lot of programming language syntaxes uh, are, you know, could be characterized as implemented misunderstandings of how, what the fundamental nature of the data is. Um, and so, you know, I think that's one of the things that contributes to the, the uh, stereotype of the jerk lisp guy <laughs> uh, looking at, you know, language X saying, oh, yeah, 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 well, you know, whatever. This is just some syntax, some new invented thing to represent a much more fundamental thing that could be more cleanly represented as, you know, S expressions or, or data. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in, in Rich's um, strange loop keynote from last year, one of his, one of the things he says is, you know, I don't care what your syntax is. I can guarantee you that data is fundamentally more powerful in, in every way. And I haven't really personally found any exceptions to that. <laughs> so that's, that was kind of the motivation behind thinking about uh, the data that CSS represents. Uh, we, we have this sort of Algol uh, block syntax for CSS uh, just sort of tacked on because it's what's familiar to most people. But I don't think that representation does a really good job of conveying what CSS is really about. Right. Um, and so that limits our, that limits our about it, uh, limits our ability to compose, say, pieces of CSS because we have to work through the syntax first or make a really complicated parser. Right, but, I think I follow that. That's actually really interesting. I hadn't quite got what you meant before, but but the idea that that there are there are more ways to express the constructs in CSS than there are actual constructs. Right. Right? I mean, in other words, that you have two different ways to express a list of things is a bad idea. <laughs> I, I mean, not not categorically. I mean, I, I sure. would say re redundancy is uh, redundancy in any kind of sort of knowledge architecture or whatever is not necessarily bad. Okay. Um, but I would say that CSS doesn't get it right in any okay. way. Okay. Interesting. That's fascinating. I th you know, I think I suspect that we could have an an entire show about about this topic as well. <laughs> um, and I'd really love to hear more of your thoughts on it. But I think. Um, I know that you have a you have to stop here. You have another appointment that you need to get to, um, so uh, <laughs> I think we may just have to leave it at that. Okay. Um, 
but I, wow, I super appreciate you coming on. I mean, the, it was great to talk to you about training, of course, but the, the whole data thing just kind of, I'm starting to understand a little bit more of what you've been talking about these last few weeks. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so as we wrap up, just a, a couple more things I, I want to ask you. Sure. Uh, uh, so um, is there is there anything that you're kind of working on right now or that you want to make people aware of? Or, you know, just, you know, you've got the mic here. What do you want to tell? Yeah, so uh, it's not something I'm working on per se. It's, it's more something I'm working on understanding. Uh, it's a paper that a friend of mine, Misha Niskin, sent me a, a, a couple months ago. Um, are you familiar with John Backus? You know, this was the tweet that I followed the link on, and I said, Lambda Calculus what now? So right. I, I I saw you reference it, but I haven't read it, no. Right. So um, there is a – there's this guy, John Backus. Uh, he, his claim to fame is work on Fortran. Um, he was one of the original designers and implementers of Fortran back in the, back in the 60s. Uh, he's also famous for – Part you know, sort of co-inventing, or I'm not sure actually if he co-invented or invented the Bacchus Nor form. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so sort of a, a luminary in computer science, and near the end of his career, when he had a sort of cushy research, do whatever you want job, uh, he was given the ACM Turing Award. I think in 1970, either 77 or 78, and the. Uh, the paper he contributed um, was an idea that he had been thinking about, which he, he he called functional programming at the time, which is unfortunate because that's that term has been co-opted by just about everybody. Well, we, we talk about persistent <laughs> data structures all the time, so who are we to complain, right? <laughs> right. Um, but one of the interesting things about this paper, which is his, I'm looking it up now, the ACM Turing Award, Bacchus, 1977. If you well, we'll put that. the link in the show notes so okay. people will be able to get at it, yeah. Yeah, so one of the interesting things about the paper is that it's maybe the most pointed and best criticism of functional programming as we know it, you know, lambda calculus-based applicative languages that I've ever read. Uh, it's, it's, it's really easy. Again, this is sort of the Lisp jerk stereotype. Like once you know Lisp, and especially once you know Clojure, you look at stuff and you're like, oh man, why would I waste my time doing this when I've got... I, I believe we, <laughs> we prefer the term uh, smug Lisp weenie. <laughs> That's it. That's the official term, I think. <laughs> That's it. But uh, you know, now and then, now and then, you, even even us Lispers run into things which give us pause. I think uh, another example of a paper is, oh man, it's called calculating versus ske- calculating versus scheming. Uh, I, I I forget. We'll have to okay. throw that. Yeah. But anyway, we'll throw that you, know, you run into these papers that are like really good criticisms of Lisp and sort of uh, mainstream parallel program uh, functional programming. And in Bacchus's paper, he says and. Like I said, I'm still working on understanding this, but he says something really interesting, which is basically that the lambda calculus is too powerful. Uh, he compares uh, unrestricted functional programming, a la the lambda calculus, as as dirty as unstructured programming with go-tos. And the sort of nail in the coffin from his perspective is the fact that when you compose functions together, you don't get a meaningful value. Uh, we like to say that functions mm-hmm. are first class in our in our list for schemes or whatever, um, but you can't. It's not like you can have one anonymous function and see if it's equal to another one. You're really only comparing pointers there. You're not actually comparing if the two functions do the same thing or are equivalent in any sort of meaningful way. Hmm. Um, so in this programming language he proposes, which he calls I think FP or, or FL, uh, 
and the, the paradigm he associates with it, he calls function level programming. He basically separates functions from higher ordered functions, and he calls higher ordered functions functional forms, and um, basically adds a category of object to a functional programming language. And uh, I'm still working through what the implications of that are, but they seem really interesting. And I think there's, uh, you know, as a as a closure person, always on the lookout for the next next cool thing. Uh, this has been sort of the thing I've I picked to really dig into and try and understand deeply. Yeah, that's cool. I, I mean, I personally came to Lisp because I was tired of waiting to find out what the next awesome thing that C Sharp was going to get. I'm like, well, <laughs> Lisp already appears to have them all because you know one would come out and they'd be like, yep, Lisp's already got that. So, uh, <laughs> so that's that's interesting to me as well. Yeah, it's neat. I mean, it's uh, I guess one of the things about our field is that you know to look for the next big thing, you really just have to look at the '70s and see yeah, what they're doing. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, well, that's really cool, Alan. So, is there anything else you want to kind of? I mean, that's enough. But is there anything else you want to kind of <laughs> let people know about? Um, no, I, I think that's about it. Definitely check out our training stuff. I, yep. You know, I would reiterate what I said about you know considering the value of training. Uh, we put a lot of effort into it, and everybody who gives the training is primarily a developer. I, we don't. Right. You know, we we don't hire people to be trainers. So right. most of our experience is current, and we genuinely mostly know what we're talking about um so yeah i just ask people to give that a look and consider it and we hope that we hope to do some open training events at various upcoming conferences to include the conj in november and um yeah just keep an eye out on on happenings cool all right well uh one more thing then uh what's the outro music what are what am i going to start playing as soon as you say it uh we're going to start playing um 808 p.m at the beach by fred falk all right you got it French house music. Sweet. Very, that's very chill. that's coming up in the background right now. Sweet. So, Alan, thank you so much. This was a really interesting conversation to me. I hope our listeners will think so as well. Um, like I said, Alan is a really smart, really funny, really interesting guy. He, he tried to disclaim that or deny that at the beginning of the show, but clearly we now have evidence to the contrary. So uh, thank you very, very much, Alan, for coming on, um, for talking about the training, for talking about all the other cool stuff we talked about. And uh, since we've already had you on twice right now... Uh, uh, that will not stop me at all from having you on uh, back again sometime soon. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about the, your evolving views on, on uh, programming and data. Uh, <laughs> or maybe we'll find something else entirely crazy to talk about. It'd be, be fun either way. I hope you can come back and talk with us again. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so thanks to our listeners as always. And we will catch you again next time on Think Relevance, the podcast.